This is 50 Shades of Green by Climate Group, your monthly climate podcast exploring all the essential news and views from the U.S. and around the world. I'm Phil Kehoe. Today, our guest correspondent, Climate Group's Executive Director for North America, Angela Barranco, will join with Christine Harada, Executive Director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council, to discuss why and how investments resulting from the Inflation Reduction Act and bipartisan infrastructure law are driving the net zero economy forward, and how we can best break down some of these critical implementation barriers. But first, some news. Welcome, Adam Lake. We have him here with us today to discuss some of the latest highlights in climate news and why they matter. Adam, what do you have for us today? So thank you, Phil, for having me here again. I guess we are sat here in New York City. So the number one story that I think we absolutely have to share is this massive orange apocalyptic smoke oh, cloud that absolutely. descended over us some while ago now. And, and, and you know, it was obviously, you know, we saw it here, if you were in DC, I mean, if you were across most of the East Coast of the United States, it was not nice. You could smell it, you could feel it in your lungs. I was coughing for weeks after, but apparently 123 million people were under air quality alerts. Um, and for every one of us, you know, we really sort of saw the impact of that. There were more than 400 wildfires coming down from Canada. Apparently 6.7 million acres has, uh, have already burnt this year that's breaking all records. And the reason why this is happening, there are fires every year, uh, it's not an unusual thing to see, but there's been a sort of perfect storm combination of humidity, heat, dryness, and it's all come together to create something that we haven't seen for a while. And whilst climate change is part of it, it isn't, you know, you can't say it's wholly caused by climate change because there are fires every year, but climate change is making this more regular and it's making it harder and wider. And that's what we're seeing. So that's mm -hmm. a, a huge impact there. Something close to home, but staying in New York State has passed for the first time a ban on gas and other fossil fuels used in homes in, in new buildings. Now, this actually passed through in early May, starting to see the ramifications of that now. It's an interesting piece of legislation. It's kind of controversial. Some people are pro, some people are against. Actually, we've seen this in places like London go through. Without a whimper, people have not actually minded too much. And in new builds, actually, electricity, induction heating is starting to get a little bit of a fan base now. But that's uh, something we've certainly seen people talking about this week. And finally... Outside of New York, let's go a bit further afield. Montana, I love this story. 16 kids in Montana are suing the state over climate change. 16 young people uh, as young as five years oh, old, wow. which is quite extraordinary. So they are saying that the state's contribution to climate change violates its constitution, which explicitly guarantees the right to a clean and healthful environment. So I think that's going to be an interesting case to watch. Who knows what might happen, but I guess we wish them well. Interesting things to look out for over the next few months, especially with this case. I think there are still some ongoing developments, and I really I can't wait to see the outcome and what happens there. It'll be interesting to see, you know, if we saw of Greta when something took hold in Europe, young people all around the world, you know, created something really big. So maybe if Montana gets lucky here, we might see this running across America and around the world. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Adam, as always, for the updates. We'll see you next time. Anytime. Climate Group's U.S. Climate Action Summit this past April brought together leaders from around the world to engage with the most pressing climate issue facing the U.S. today. 
the implementation of the U.S.'s historic climate investments. With over $369 billion in potential investments alone from the Inflation Reduction Act, there is enormous potential for the United States, public and private sector, to leverage this momentum into substantive progress on meeting the Paris Agreement goals. Of course, challenges and barriers still remain as to how these funds and regulations will ultimately materialize. But there is reason to be optimistic given the momentum and market outlook. We are so happy to welcome to Fifty Shades of Green our guest correspondent, Climate Group Executive Director for North America, Angela Barranco. Great to have you on the show today, Angela. Cool. So glad to be here and very excited to welcome Christine Harada. Hello. She is hello, the executive director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council, also known as the FPISC. I know that's quite a mouthful, Christine, but at the same time, I have a feeling all of those words mean a lot of very big, important things that you've been working on. So we're just so excited to have you here to talk to us a little bit about all the incredible work you're all doing and get a sense of the incredible leadership that you're showing today. So thanks for joining us, Christine. But Christine, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to this incredible place, an incredible opportunity at this moment in time for making so much change with climate and um, in the environment as part of the Biden-Harris administration? Yes, I firstly, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here and interacting with you and your audience. It's truly an exciting time to be working in the climate and clean energy arena, because this is something that I know many of us have been working on and agitating for, for going on a good decade, really, at this point, if not maybe more for many of us. And we are finally at that point where we are bringing to life the ambitious environmental and clean energy agenda and actually working on projects that are facilitating, and no joke, the transition to a clean energy economy. So it's no longer about words or buzzwords or slogans. We're here, we're taking action, we're putting concrete in the ground, steel in the ground. I feel like a lot of the things that I've done in my career have really led me to this point. You know, I have my background in everything from engineering to management consulting and understanding how business works, how the private sector thinks about making these kinds of investments. And of course, the work that uh, I did previously in the Obama administration in sustainability really marries up to be able to execute and help the nation build out its infrastructure for the next decade. Well, Christine, I mean... You've got an incredible background. So of course, they're very lucky to have you. But like you said, it's a really important moment. And I feel like you're a fabulous leader for this time. What is so special about this moment? I think you talked a little bit about it because, you know, there is concrete steel going in the ground. But it sounds like you also have significant climate investments across the board, regulatory actions. Can you tell us sort of a, a bit more about what that looks like right now? And what's so special about that time? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, one of the truly the seminal moments took place over the last two years with the president successfully getting major legislative accomplishments, right? And I know that, you know, perhaps your audience may have heard about this, but I think we can't underscore that point enough because all of those legislations, the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, they have a lot of stuff in there. The clean energy sector alone will be receiving more than $500 billion in taxpayer funding over the next decade. We're, and we are also, with those legislations, providing the clarity and the stability to engage with the private sector to be able to enable the clean energy transition, to deploy the capital, to actually build the businesses and to create jobs. You need the clarity, you need the stability to be able to do that. 
And we have been able to do that with those three landmark pieces of legislation. Of course, there's a lot of activity also going on in the regulatory space, tons across not just the NEPA regulation changes that are upcoming, as well as a lot of the work that we've done around ensuring cleaner energy and a healthier human environment, you know, for a lot of the impacted communities, a lot of efforts around ensuring environmental justice and really putting the investments uh, that need to be made in that particular realm and ensuring that we're actually delivering on the promises for the United States with respect to ensuring a more perfect union, right? We can't do that without everybody on board. And so ensuring that we have coverage for not just those of us who have had experience in climate and business and economics, et cetera, but also for those communities that have been, you know, more on the receiving end of a lot of these types of policies historically and enabling them to have a voice in the matter as well. So I'm going to pick up on something you said there, because I think, you know, one of the biggest critiques both on either side of these issues is always fairness. Right. And, you know, how do you be fair to the businesses who are impacted? And how do we make sure that, you know, we don't stifle growth and all of the economic talking points that some folks will use about this? But then on the other hand, how do you ensure that communities most impacted are actually benefiting from this transition? How do we make sure that those stakeholders also part of this transition, that they are centered in the change and in the benefits that come from a new clean energy economy? So how do you balance that? How do you make sure that all of these folks have a voice in this process? Yeah, it's a great question and a really big challenge for all of us collectively, not just at the government, but, you know, the private sector, philanthropies, nonprofit organizations, and us as everyday citizens living in our respective communities. The president believes that every person has a right to clean air, clean water, and to live in a healthy community. It is a fundamental first principle human right issue. Of course, for far too long, many communities across the country have been, to your point, Angela, been on the receiving end of toxic pollution or under investment in infrastructure and critical services. And I think a lot of that, you know, our ability to be able to address that truly does start from the top. You have to have the commitment from the senior most levels of the government to ensure that we have that commitment to confront those long-standing environmental injustices, inequities, and ensure that we're making the movements towards a more positive difference in people's lives now and into the future. You know, thus far, this administration's taken a lot of action to help improve public health and reduce pollution, you know, whether it be by cutting tailpipe emissions or replacing lead pipes, accelerating Superfund cleanups, and, you know, tightening air quality enforcement near some polluting facilities, uh, but there's a whole lot more work that needs to be done. And I think that ensuring that those voices and the perspectives and the lived experiences of the marginalized and overburdened communities absolutely requires us to hear their voices, certainly at the White House, throughout the federal agencies, and is reflected in everything we do across the federal government. There's a couple of ways that we're doing this, you know, through what we like to term a whole of government effort to confront those longstanding environmental injustices and equities. You know, firstly, is around transparency and accountability, very much at the core of the president's commitment to environmental justice, which is why he directed the creation of the environmental justice scorecard, which is the first ever government-wide assessment of what the federal government's actually doing to advance environmental justice. And that scorecard also incorporates recommendations and feedback from the public, environmental justice stakeholders, experts, as well as formal recommendations from the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council that we had uh, stood up as well. Of course, the scorecard alone 
can never fully capture the depth or the range of active work or the long-term impact. And that is something that needs to continue to live on. So, you know, we in the administration have a number of efforts with our both working within the federal agencies as well as with the impacted communities to provide things like technical assistance. How do we think about designing grants and resourcing opportunities and doing the notifications and helping provide that assistance to communities to be able to provide that input as well as uh, apply for those opportunities? How do we help provide opportunities for folks to provide feedback and advice and public comments for projects, et cetera. How do we think about building capacity, not just in the federal agencies and how we think about it, but also with the communities and also how do we think about interacting with those communities, community benefits agreements, things of that nature. There's a whole lot of work, um, as you can tell, going on in the space. I mean, I love that framework and I think a lot of people will get a lot of insight in just thinking about how you guys are tackling the problem. But for so many people, this stuff is just so complex, so big picture, billions of dollars, different types of agencies. It's a lot to kind of digest. So just break it down for us. What is the coolest project you've been able to work on? The neatest sort of application of this that sort of crystallizes how amazing the transformative moment really is? That is a tough question because there's so many really cool projects. Okay, okay. So I have two examples, one on land and one on sea. So I'll start with the land one first. We worked on a utility scale solar and energy storage project, and it borders the tribal lands. So what's key about this particular tribe is that they are a non-gaming tribe. So that means for their revenues, they don't have a casino. They don't got none of that. And so they were very much looking for other opportunities to be able to raise revenue for their lands and for their people and to be able to provide services for the nation. We worked on this particular project adjacent to tribal lands, obviously meets a lot of the clean energy goals, the ambitions that this administration has. But what was critical about that was that we did that hand in hand with the project sponsor, federal agencies, thinking through how should we permit this particular project? How do we build this particular project? How do we actually employ people and train up people both from the tribal nation as well as locals and provide them with really good paying jobs? How do we think about leveraging the innovations both in the technology associated with building out solar fields and energy storage to be able to build that out? And that is a fantastic story based out in Nevada. The other one is offshore wind as an environmental and engineering nerd. Super fun topic for me, but just a tremendous technical challenge to be able to build out a system like that, period, but also a remarkable opportunity for us to create and develop and deploy a brand new industry in this country, right? It's not just about implementing the turbines, but it's also how do we build out the vessels, the actual ships that go out and install these turbines? How do we think about operations and maintenance? All of the workforce and economic development activities, a lot of the community benefits agreements were baked into the leasing agreements that the federal government put out for bid that the project developers are actually now taking on board a lot more economic development, collaboration and activity than ever before. And so I think that these are all win-win-win type models that we could and should emulate across the board. No, I love that. And just so exciting to see sort of the broad range of communities that are going to benefit, right? And I think that sort of gets to the heart of the kind of mantra, of, you know, all this investment is going to be out there in the community as a whole. So switching gears slightly again, 
positives, lots of great things. But what keeps you up at night? At the end of the day, you know, we hear a lot of folks talking about permitting and great projects that take decades to get off the ground. I'm sure you have a also another suite of examples of places where there are so many challenges. But for you right now, like, what's the next critical path forward that we really need to get through in order to be able to move things faster? Yeah, certainly. I think it does require a certain newer way of thinking and engaging with other people, right? So in both of those examples that I just listed, they required extensive engagement and a shifting in our mindset of how we interact between a regulatory entity, a tribal nation, a historically disadvantaged community, and a commercial entity, a project developer. How do we engage in productive conversations, working together towards that? And I say it like that, and it sounds so simple, but fundamentally, we all speak a very different type of English. Systems engineering in software is very different from systems engineering in satellites. They mean two very different things, and yet obviously the English words remain the same. That is true also of these kinds of engagements that we think about like environmental impact means something completely different to a disadvantaged community and what their lived experience has been for decades at this point, as it might for a project developer, as it might also for an environmental NGO. And so getting a much more plain English understanding of what all is it that we're agreeing to do, that here's the North Star, This I know this is what we wanna do in our respective views, and then figuring out how we get there, it is doable, it's also going to be challenging. And so recognizing that people will need to exercise both patience as well as a willingness to be able to shift their views as required, as appropriate given newer information. The other element that I do really worry about along the lines of increase in both volume and frequency of misinformation and disinformation, whether it be about the impact to the community, impact to species, it is very difficult for the average citizen and even also for federal agencies too to parse out what does that language say in this particular disinformation campaign or whatever the case might be, and figure out how does that impact us from a scientific perspective, but also how does that actually impact the community and their viewpoints? Because that is something that can very quickly spin out of control. And I do very much as a former engineer, it offends me greatly to see science and facts like that being just so taken advantage of and misconstrued. And that is something that I believe everybody needs to be taking seriously and being very active in their listening and research. I mean, I love that, Christine, because I think we can't take for granted, like you said, that everybody has the same definition, but also that some people are not purposefully misleading with the language that they use. And, you know, whether it's to the benefit of a company, benefit of a community, whatever it is, I think approaching this together is, is a really critical thing. What about the future? So looking forward, you know, and I think we've talked a little bit about the negative, we talked a little bit about the current positive, but like, what does FPISC have to do today, tomorrow, the next month, the next year to be successful? What does the climate community as a whole have to do? I know that's a lot to speak to, but at the same time, I think you're at the intersection of these really critical pieces, just this really incredible moment. So I would love to hear what you think. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, and again, I'm excited to be here in this role and to be here now and in the fight because fundamentally addressing climate change and the work that we are all trying to do 
we are very fortunate to have received so much taxpayer dollars, right? Again, in those landmark legislations, over $500 billion. But transitioning away from fossil fuels is going to require far more investment capital from the private sector. We need trillions, literally, every year over the next decade to make that clean energy transition happen at the pace and scale that the client science demands. And our ambitious agenda obviously includes targets to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by fairly like 50 to 52 percent levels, fairly significant, achieve a carbon-free electric grid by 2035. Like these are really bold and ambitious goals. And I'd like to think that the federal government's finally created conditions for that energy and economic transformation, and that's going to be government-enabled, but private sector-led. Private sector is going to need to deploy the capital. They're the ones that build those businesses. They're the ones that actually create the jobs. And we'd absolutely need every private sector entity to take advantage of the tax credits and the Inflation Reduction Act. They have the ability now to make longer term decisions. You don't have to hedge an investment decision to await any potential short term extensions or whatever the case might be. So there's never been a better time for clean energy in America. And I think, you know, enabling that private sector ideas, investment and support will fundamentally allow the United States to build out so many things in our infrastructure that we need are all the clean energy stuff, the manufacturing supply chain that's going to underpin this clean energy transition and freeing us from dependence on more unfavorable nations for whether it be battery and solar components, materials, finished products, things of that nature. And so I fundamentally see our role as being that facilitator and enabler for allowing that to be able to happen. It is fundamental to being able to power the transition going forward. Christine, what, on a personal note, what powers you? What gives you energy? What gets you excited for every day? You know, this is tough work. I think it's really important to keep our heads up and keep motivated. What is that for you? Besides copious amounts of caffeine, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I genuinely love this mission. I think it's a tremendous opportunity to be able to have that kind of impact. Even looking back in history, at least in my brief history, since my existence, there are only few moments like this in life, period. You know, I started out my career as an aerospace engineer, and I think back to the days of the Apollo mission, and oh my goodness, what I would give to have been born in the 50s so I could have been part of that, right, to actually be part of something that big. And in my view, this is kind of the same type of emotional drive for me. This is my version of that moonshot. It's the climate moonshots. And to be able to participate in that endeavor, something that's far greater than me, than just my one lonesome person that absolutely will have hopefully a positive impact on my children who are teenagers now, being able to actually see it through so that they may live in a world that is beneficial and productive and being able to leave behind an environment that is obviously clean and healthy and everything like that for them is everything. Incredible. I mean, I think there's no better ending words to this interview. Thank you, Christine Harada, Executive Director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. We are so lucky to have you have joined us today. Thank you again. Phil, back to you. So, Adam, we've just heard from Angela and Christine, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about what we can take away from this conversation. 
Yeah, I don't know what you feel, Phil, but it feels like all roads lead to the Inflation Reduction Act in these conversations, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that are in this particular piece of legislation that are focused on maximizing tax credits and really building out these investments, especially in clean energy and also investing in communities, that it was super interesting to hear from Christine and and Angela about the multitude and many different ways in which the climate crisis is one affecting us and the ways in which these investments are going to help deal with this problem. Just shows the reality, doesn't it? You know, this is about money. We are an NGO. We work with campaigners. We work with inspirational people all around the world. And these things are so important to do what we need to do. But without any money, you don't have any power. These are billions of pounds of dollars in the US. And you can just see that they're allowing things to happen. They're allowing movement, allowing change. Uh, And so the fact that that money is there, it's pushing us into places we couldn't have seen before. I think this was a great example hearing from her today is that the power of money in motivating people to take action. And I think the second thing that I really got from this is just how important engagement and communications is to this. Because it is about money, but it's about different audiences, how a business reacts to this, how community reacts to this, how government agencies, of which there are many, react to this. It's all so different and it's all so complicated. She mentions that we all speak a different language. It's completely true. That for me feels like a threat, but it also feels like a massive opportunity. Absolutely. There is a wonderful opportunity to translate how this crisis really impacts so many different spheres of the public and how we can best address each of these individual sectors. So having all of these things laid out in this particular piece of of legislation and trying to govern that and make sure that we are really maximizing all of these investments is something that I think will be really critical for the future of the country and the climate crisis. What we are learning is that you do have to engage on a different level with different audiences. But as we have seen, it is possible and you just need to bring people together and they do start speaking the same language. You know, that's why we do Climate Week NYC. That's why we do the US Climate Action Summit. So you know, it's great to hear from Christina an example of how it works. Thanks again for tuning in and a special shout out to our guests, Angela and Christine. Be sure to check us out online at climategroup.org and stay tuned for all of our amazing events, including Climate Week NYC starting September 17th. Climate Group's 50 Shades of Green is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Google. Stay well, and we'll see you next time.